Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Adam McElhaney from Uptake. Adam is Uptake's Chief of Machine Learning and AI Strategy. And in addition to that, he's also on the faculty at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Adam, how are you? Great. Thanks, Rob. No, thanks for coming on. I mean, I'm excited about this one. Like, do you want to give us a little kind of an intro on what you do and and also like what you teach at Illinois Institute of Technology? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so like you mentioned, my, my day job, uh, I'm the Chief of Machine Learning and AI Strategy at Uptake. Uptake is a company headquartered in Chicago, and we are we're an industrial IoT company. So our sweet spot is taking sensor data off large industrial machines, and then we make asset performance management software that helps uh, our users optimize their assets, figure out where they are. Um, but then what my team contributes to that software is we we take all this data and we develop algorithms that predict you know when the machine's going to fail what repairs are required if it does fail. Um, it makes recommendations on how they can operate the machines more efficiently to use less fuel and more safe. Uh, so my team owns all of those algorithms, uh, the development and deployment of those algorithms. So that's my day job. Um, at night, I, uh, I adjunct at the Illinois Institute of Technology, which is a, a great school here in Chicago. Um, in the fall, I usually teach in the Department of Computer Science. Recently, I, I taught a big data computing class. And in the spring, I usually teach in the Department of Mathematics um, around data science and data analysis. How did you get your start in data science and artificial intelligence? Yeah, so it's funny. You know, I went to undergrad thinking that I, I really wanted to be a lawyer. Um, but then I realized the reason I wanted to be a lawyer is because that's kind of the only job I knew that I thought was, you know, really important and made a lot of money, which those are, those are not good reasons to go into a career. Um, so I, I majored in uh, economics, math, and political science, which might sound like kind of a weird combination, right? You have like very qualitative discipline of political science, and then you have the very quantitative discipline of math. And then um, economics is kind of somewhere in the middle, right? But I realized that I'm, I'm really fascinated uh, by human behavior and how you can use mathematical models to kind of represent human behavior. Um, you know, can you predict how people are going to vote? Um, can you replicate the work that, um, you know, experienced political analysts would do or an experienced election forecaster would do? 
from there, you know, I started working with a professor and we were using something called neural network models to predict housing prices for residential real estate. And I really enjoyed it because it, it married all those aspects together, you know, using human behavior and, and trying to predict it using mathematical models. You know, the residential real estate market is, it's a really interesting market, right? Um, that's typically somebody's largest asset that they own is, is their residential property. And uh, there's like a deep emotional tie to, to that, the properties that they're selling and the properties that they're buying. So that market functions differently than, you know, maybe the stock market might, which, which tends to be much more rational. So I kind of started dipping my toe into AI then. But from there, you know, I stumbled into an internship with the, with the Department of Defense subcontractor. And uh, we were building simulations for real world infrastructure. So if you've ever played the video game SimCity, did you play SimCity growing up, Rob? Absolutely. Yeah. So you know how like you have, you know, replicas of blocks and roads and infrastructure. Uh, we were building like real world replicas of, of infrastructure. And then we were trying to answer questions like, how can I provide clean water or electricity, you know, subject to the constraints of a particular area, the availability of raw materials to maximize citizen welfare, or how can I structure a refugee camp to, to minimize disease spread? So at that point, I was really hooked on like just using math to solve kind of these social science type questions. Um, I went back to school for very theoretical math, uh, got my master's, decided not to continue on to a PhD because I kind of decided that I really enjoyed applying those concepts in industry. And so I really wanted to do that as soon as possible. So from there, you know, I was fully hooked. I was, I was all in on AI at that point. No, awesome. And I guess, you know, what brought you into the industrial space, like AI, you know, you can, like, as you mentioned, right, you can apply it to essentially any problem that you want in any industry. So what brought you into the industrial space? Yeah. So the reason I got into using AI for industrial reliability the, the short answer is uh, I got a cold call from Uptake CEO, Brad Keywell. But the longer answer was, uh, you know, before coming to Uptake, I, I worked in financial services for like eight years. And, you know, financial services is very advanced in using data for decision making. You know, like it used to be back in like the 60s or 70s, like if you wanted a loan, you would go to a, a branch of a bank, you would sit down with a human, you know, they would kind of eye you up and down. You know, they might ask around town, like, oh, is Rob a good guy? Should I give him a loan? And then, you know, they make the recommendation and either give you a loan or don't give you a loan. You know, today we would we would think that that, that was crazy if that happened, right? You know, that process is obviously inefficient. It's full of human bias. The the quality of those recommendations or that analysis is is very suspect, right? So financial services spent a lot of time in the 80s and 90s um, automating a lot of that decision making. and uh, there's still humans in a, in a lot of that process. Like if you apply for a mortgage, it, it still probably is touched by a human, uh, but they've automated away a lot of like the more drudge, uh, more, a lot of the drudgery or the, the less interesting parts. And now the humans are focusing on, you know, really the challenging corner cases of that. Right. So I, I spent eight years in financial services doing very similar things and taking that to the next level. And then I got a cold call from our CEO about uptake and, you know, I had kind of heard about IoT and reliability and how, you know, data science might be able to help with this. Um, but I got really excited about the opportunity the more I thought about it. You know, when I, when I was doing my homework for deciding whether or not this is something I wanted to do, I kind of looked at what 
current state in the industry was. And, you know, as your listeners are, are very familiar, and a, a lot of times companies have teams of subject matter experts who are very intelligent and know these machines ins and outs, but they spend a lot of time looking at fault codes coming off these machines, you know, grouping fault codes together, writing work orders. And I really saw analogies between a lot of those routine tasks that people are doing in industry right now and a lot of those routine tasks that people used to do in financial services. So I thought it made a lot of sense that you could use AI to similarly transform industry to so these SMEs can really focus on the higher value use cases. Uh, so that, that was kind of the opportunity that I saw. But then the next question would be like, what's the impact? And then I started looking at like, well, you know, where could this be applicable? I'm like, well, you know, this can be applicable in manufacturing, mining, you know, oil and gas, transportation, and just the list of use cases went on and on. And, you know, you start looking at the, the size of these sectors and I mean, it's massive, right? You know, like what, what is like a 1% improvement in the reliability of, of like global manufacturing mean for global GDP? Like th those are huge upstream uh, impacts. So at that point, you know, I was firmly bought into the value of this and, and thought it was just a great opportunity and definitely something worth investing my time into. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like even some of the projects that Uptake has worked on, you know, the, you know, like with Caterpillar and uh, like the Bradley tanks, I mean, even, you know, just for them, like 1% is still massive amounts of money. Absolutely. Um, you know, some of the stuff we're doing defense, I, I find, you know, particularly exciting. A good, a good friend of mine uh, went to West Point and was an army infantry officer. And he was actually in a Bradley company. And I, I was talking with him about it. And he said, you know, when he was downfield at any, at any point, 20 to 30% of his Bradleys would be out of commission. And he's like, that's just resources. I cannot, that those, that's manpower that I can't deploy into the field. He's like, if you can cut that, you know, down to 10%, I mean, the impact for them is, is huge. And I never served myself, but I thought that this was something that, you know, it's really important to contribute back to, to society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the, like some of the industrial applications that I can give you examples for is, is like, uh, oftentimes in mobile equipment, even just like having a haul truck down anywhere in the neighborhood of 500 to a couple thousand bucks an hour in terms of the plant itself, it can be a hundred thousand to a couple hundred thousand an hour. So it adds up real, really quickly. Absolutely. Uh, we, we've heard from some of our rail customers that um, typical unplanned downtime event for them costs about like $150,000. I mean, that's just, those are huge dollars, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess uh, kind of what I wanted to get into and like a lot of people listening, like we're kind of familiar with AI and, and how it's kind of getting into the reliability space, but we might not be familiar really with the details. So the first question I wanted to ask you was, can you give us an introduction to like, what is artificial intelligence? And then give us the difference between machine learning, AI, and deep learning. Yeah. So there's a lot of terms that get thrown around like machine learning, AI, deep learning. I would also toss like data science into there, predictive analytics. I mean, we could probably brainstorm like a bunch more. Um, these are actually like pretty ill-defined concepts. And, uh, you know, if you ask like 10 practitioners, you'll, you'll probably get, get 10 different answers. Also, the terms are kind of highly interrelated. So it can make kind of differentiating between them kind of, kind of nuanced or subject to interpretation. But 
you know, that being said, like, let me kind of give you, give you my take on this. Right. So let's start with data science. So like my company, I, so although my title is, um, chief, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning strategy officer, my department is actually called the data science department. And so, you know, when we think about data science, we think of it as a, a three-legged stool. We think of it as uh, somebody with very strong math and statistics knowledge. Um, so, you know, we're, it's important that we understand, you know, how numbers can be used to, to drive these results. And in order to do that, you kind of need to have some foundational math knowledge. Um, the second piece is really around programming, right? So although we occasionally will whip out a pen and paper or, or whiteboard out some math, you know, it, in the real world, like a lot of times you're doing, you, you, you're programming computers to do this math for you, right? Um, and then the, the third pillar is really domain expertise. So, you know, we're an industrial focused company. I'm not interested in, you know, predicting which ads customers will click on or some of these other applications of AI. I'm, I'm really focused on these industrial specific use cases. And so it's important that we have that domain expertise, right? So that's kind of the first term like data science, right? The next term is around, you know, let's talk about artificial intelligence next, right? So AI kind of vaguely refers to this idea of a computer doing things that you or I would consider smart or kind of things that humans can only do, right? Um, but this is kind of a moving target. So Rob, imagine it was like the 1950s and I came to you and I'm like, hey, Rob, I have this machine. Um, it can look at a map. It can find a destination. It can compare that destination to your current location. You know, it can plot multiple routes for you to get to that destination and select the best one. You would probably say like, that's crazy. Like only a human can do that. That That's crazy, right? But today we would just call that like Google Maps, right? And like most people would not consider that AI. Um, so AI today is kind of an umbrella term for these items that, you know, we kind of think only humans can do. Another thing that's kind of frequently cited as AI is uh, conversational functionality or like chatbot type functionality. We've probably all had like a, a bad experience with the chatbot or, you know, we've probably all yelled at Siri or, or whatever else you have on our phone. Um, but you know, that, it used to be that understanding natural language and then returning a result was something that was kind of considered AI. There was this famous kind of benchmark called the Turing test that was proposed uh, by Alan Turing, like shortly after World War II. And it's kind of debated. It basically was like, can uh, you'll have AI when um, a human can converse with a computer and the human can't differentiate between a human responding or the computer responding. It's kind of debatable whether or not this is like, uh, whether the Turing test has been passed yet. But the point is, you know, AI just kind of represents this, this vague sense of a computer doing something that we would consider only a human could be doing. Uh, machine learning, you can kind of think is like a subset of AI, although they're quite tightly related. So, you know, machine translation is a, a good use case to illustrate machine learning. So when people first started trying to write computer programs, that would translate, you know, let's say English to Spanish. They try to approach this from like a rules-based approach or, you know, I, th I think you've done a little bit of programming, so you probably know what a conditional is, like if this, then that, else that type thing, right? Um, it turns out if you try to do translating English to Spanish and you you're using that rules-based approach, it, 
you're going to quickly find that it it becomes unwieldy or impossible. You know, these languages, they don't follow always like a clear cut set of rules. The number of cases that you have to enumerate through quickly, you know, will overwhelm even the, even the most caffeinated of programmers. <laughs> um, so, you know, machine learning is a concept of like, okay, can we train the computer to do something without like explicitly being programmed by a human? Right. So can we feed it some text in English and feed it some text in Spanish and have it kind of infer without us having to explicitly write if this, then that, um, how to translate English to Spanish. Right. So that's kind of what you think about from machine learning. Um, a lot of machine learning also tend to has a concept of taking feedback from the real world and improving over time. So, you know, if I write a program that does translate your English to Spanish uh, and I got it wrong, you know, we wanted to have the ability to provide that feedback. Hey, I think you mistranslated this piece. And then that computer program should get smarter over time. So you can see how it's kind of vaguely associated with AI or it can kind of be considered a subset of AI. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, like one of the examples that I've heard from people talking about it, at least in the maintenance and reliability sense is you can think of, you know, like a machine learning algorithm as an apprentice. Yes. So we, that's funny you say that. So I usually, I like that analogy. I, the way I usually describe it to customers is, um, you know, we, it's like bottling up your most experienced reliability engineer and then just like cloning him and deploying him to all your different sites. A lot of our customers, they have, you know, kind of a bimodal workforce where they have, you know, maybe a handful of people who have been there 30 or 40 years who, who kind of know everything, Right. And then they have maybe this, you know, some people have been there five to 15 years who are still kind of learning. And a lot of our customers are concerned when those subject matter experts or the, those, those top reliability engineers retire, you know, how do we ensure that there's not a big productivity drop off and how can we get those more junior employees up to speed quicker? And I really think about AI as like a bottling of, of that wisdom so we can get those junior employees to be almost as productive as the most senior reliability engineers. That's a great way to think about it. And, and another thing that like, I just want to mention from my experience using machine learning is, or at least one problem that I found was don't assume, like you can think of it as an apprentice, but don't assume it comes in to the, or it tackles the problem in the way that you would as a human, just because like we, we've learned stuff over our, our lives and we, we usually have an understanding of logic at least it doesn't have logic. So if you treat it, like if you put in one piece of data that might be anomalous, it might not, un, like it might not be able to draw a conclusion from that, that you would as a person. So just be FYI to the, to the listeners. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, one, one problem with machine learning and AI is it, it really doesn't understand causation like a human would, right? So it could be that you know, it could be every time this machine broke, it was a full moon. And, you know, if I went to you and I said, hey, Rob, as an engineer, you know, does this make sense? You would say, like, that's ridiculous, right? That that doesn't make any sense. But like you said, like, it has no prior experience to draw from to know that that's ridiculous. It's just looking for associations between inputs and outputs. Yeah, and, and that was actually so it was funny you mentioned that is is uh well, I I uh, presented this at one of the conferences I was at was uh, one of my favorite websites is Spurious Correlations. Oh, yeah. And I put up a graph of the correlation between divorce rates in Maine and margarine consumption. Sure. 
And I just used that just to make that correlation, right? Like a computer would look at this and go, you know, over the last 10 years, this, this correlation is pretty strong. And it might infer that, hey, you know, if we know the, the divorce rate of next year, then obviously margarine consumption would go up. But in reality, that doesn't make any sense at, at all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you also asked about deep learning. I want to make sure we cover that. Uh, that's something we frequently asked about too. So what's the difference between data science and AI and machine learning and deep learning? So delete, deep learning refers to a specific class of algorithms. Deep learning is like a subclass of algorithms within a larger class of algorithms called neural networks. Um, neural networks are a really old concept. Like if you look, go on Wikipedia and look up neural networks, they'll say it's like a, uh, an algorithm that's inspired by the human brain. I actually think that that kind of is overly optimistic and kind of detracts from, from the point of neural networks. Um, but neural networks are this concept that was kind of pioneered probably in like the uh, mid 1950s, but as computing power and the availability of data, you know, really grew starting in the late nineties, but really in the two thousands through current, um, the ability to stack more and more of these neural network models together became feasible and it became functional. Uh, and that, that's what they call deep learning. So deep learning is, is this class of algorithms that are really good for cases where you have a lot of high quality labeled data. So uh, jumping back to machine translation, that um, the most modern approaches to machine translation take a, a deep learning approach. Most uh, modern approaches to image recognition or object detection take a, take a deep learning approach. But you can think of deep learning as a subset of neural networks, which are kind of a subset of machine learning, which is kind of a subset of AI, uh, which is practiced by people called data scientists. That's kind of the way I think about it. No, that's great. I, like, I'm really happy that you went through that because people, I think that's going to be really helpful for people who are trying to figure out what people are talking about, at least at these conferences. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I would encourage your listeners though, I don't, don't get too caught up in the specific algorithms or the, the vocab of it. Um, you know, the, the real value is in the, the project definition and, uh, uh, and framing of it. You know, the, the algorithm is kind of an, an afterthought in, in many cases. So I guess a question I've gotten a lot, and, and I think that you're, you're going to have a, some insight on this, is, you know, a lot of people ask, how much data do we need to get started? Like, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, so I get this question all the time, and it, it's really tough. Uh, I wish I could kind of give a magic number, uh, but I, I don't have that. But I, I really encourage people kind of, like I was just saying, I wouldn't think about it as binary, like applying AI or not, right? So like there's really like a sliding scale of value. Like you, you can achieve significant reliability improvements just from having like a well curated data set of maintenance records. And then even just some like simple business rules that are SME informed or informed from the OEM, right? You could you could probably if if all you had was some subject matter expertise and a few dozen instances of machine failures, you know, you could probably derive some business rules that'll capture 50% of the value, right? Most people wouldn't really consider that AI, but 
you know, that that's a good enough foundation for your enterprise to start to see the value from kind of these quantitative approaches. And then from there, you know, you can really start building and layering on levels of complexity to capture more and more value. But I mean, you can you can really capture a lot of that value from simple stuff. So, you know, I, I would really encourage your listeners, don't think about it as are we applying AI? Like it's like a binary thing because it's really more of like a maturity scale. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point of view. And, and I guess, you know, on that on that note about like applying subject matter expertise, like Mark, like your colleague, Mark Benick was on the show uh, a few months ago and, you know, he worked for Asset Performance Technologies, which was acquired by Uptake. And now, you know, you like you at Uptake have access to the world's largest failure mode library. And kind of the question that I have, you know, as I marginally okay with machine learning, but like, how do you draw that parallel? Like, how do you connect the two dots of like, I understand that a pump fails in, you know, eight or 10 different ways and what that means in terms of a data science machine learning perspective. Sure. So, yeah. So APT is this incredible piece of technology, um, that, you know, allows professionals to kind of optimize their, their maintenance plan going forward. Right. So you kind of go into this database called the asset strategy library, which has, you know, a really exhaustive list of different equipment and say, okay, this is the equipment I have. And you kind of input your financial assumptions. You know, this is what downtime costs me. This is what a maintenance action costs me. Uh, you put in your resource constraints and it, it runs an optimization algorithm that says, okay, Rob, like, you know, this is when you should maintain this pump and these are the maintenance actions you should perform. And this is when you should maintain this gearbox and here are the maintenance actions you should perform, right? So this data set, it's very highly curated, like engineering drive data, right? So it's like an FMEA based analysis where they've mapped out all the different failure modes, all the different maintenance strategies. So the real value of this in marrying this uh, with uptakes previous technology is, is kind of twofold, right? So first, these machine learning algorithms, like they're, they're pretty smart, but they can still benefit from subject matter expertise. So it can, like, let's say I'm trying to predict when this pump's going to fail. Um, it can actually use the ASL, the asset strategy library, to give the algorithm hints on where to look, right? So if we know that one of the failure modes for this pump, like what, what's your favorite failure mode for a pump? Uh, cavitation. Okay. So let's say cavitation and what, what, what might be some forward-looking indicators of cavitation? Uh, inlet pressure, outlet pressure, probably electrical voltage. Okay, great. So you have this huge piece of machinery, and within that machinery, there's a pump, and you're trying to figure out cavitation, right? So these algorithms can look and say, all right, what they can look at the ASL and say, what are all the ways this asset can fail? They can say, oh, ASL says this asset can fail uh, due to cavitation. And then it can say, well, what, what signals might I look at to predict cavitation? And it can uh, look at things like inward pressure, outward pressure, and all of those different signals that you mentioned um, as a way of kind of taking that SME knowledge that's in that ASL database and giving hints to the algorithm as it's fitting, as it's being fit to the data. So are you simulating the failure in any way, or you're just feeding in the parameters that the subject matter expert picks? Yeah, so we have a, a, a database of 
of R&D data that we've curated internally. So unlike ASL, this is uh, actual signal and real world event data, right? We can then supplement that with our customers' data and then actually train these algorithms and models off real world instances. Uh, so that means we don't have to do any like physics-based modeling or physics-based simulation of those components. Um, some of our customers will have those physics-based simulations already. And uh, that's great. We actually take those as inputs into the machine learning algorithm uh, as additional hints, again, for the algorithm. Uh, but we're not constructing physics-based models ourselves. That's not really our area of expertise. It tends to be very manually intensive. And um, you know some of these assets have very long operating lives. And you'll see that the, the asset can really deviate from um, its simulation due to changes in operating condition, or you know maybe somebody installed a, a non-OEM fuel filter or something like that. And all these things can kind of cause uh, deviations from the simulation. So we, we tend to take a much more machine learning focused approach. So if someone's listening and they're looking to, you know, like let's say they want to work with Uptake to, to solve a problem using uh, machine learning, like how do they start how do you recommend they start? And like, what do people do right when they're when they're looking at these types of problems? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you know, whether you're going to work with uptake or not, you know, if you want to get started with AI, um, you know, there's a couple of patterns that I've seen that I always recommend. I kind of first recommend by just inventorying your current data and doing an assessment to try to figure out the quality of it, right? So AI you know, really is fueled by data and the higher quality of the data and the higher quantity of data, the better, right? But many of our customers, these large companies, you know, they have difficulty even answering like, well, what data you have, where does it live? And does it all kind of speak a common language? And what's the quality of that data? One of your previous guests talked about the, the difficulty around building an asset registry and a standardized asset hierarchy. I'm blanking on the name. A Suzanne Greenman. Yeah. And so I agree with everything she said. Right. So like a lot of companies haven't even taken those steps yet. And that that's really like a good starting point. Right. Or like maybe you have that in place, but um, the quality might be pretty low. A lot of times, you know, the people entering the data, they actually don't get the feedback on whether or not the data they entered was useful. And if they enter in poor quality data, you know, there's no real stick there for them. And if they enter in good quality data, there's no real carrot either. Right. So take some time, kind of inventory your data and clean it up. Um, a rule of thumb is, you know, if you can do some kind of basic Excel analysis and start deriving like reasonably useful insights from your data, then like you're probably in a good enough place to start kind of building towards like the ultimate goal of AI. So like, let's assume like, you know, you've cleaned up your data, you're in a reasonably good spot. You know, I really recommend kind of starting with some pilot projects like I talked about. You know, can you get some subject matter experts in a room and develop some business rules and roll those out? Can you kind of start to, can you maybe make some plots of your machine behavior over time and spot some useful trends? Um, that can be a great way to kind of build momentum within your organization and kind of start to make sure the organization curates data as a valuable asset. I think at this point, you know, you need to ask yourself. So at this point, you know, we have some data and we're starting to derive value. You need to ask yourself, you know, is this a core competitive differentiator for our firm? And if so, then you, you know, you really want to may want to start investing in that skill set within your firm. 
Um, for many of our customers, and, and maybe you have an opinion on this though, a lot of them view, you know, they say, uh, I own a mine, I own and operate a mine. My core business is owning and operating a mine. My core business is not AI. Um, owning and operating a mine is really hard. Um, and doing AI is really hard. So, you know, you can argue that those should be kind of different things, right? So a lot of them will say, you know, I, this isn't an area I want to grow internally. This is an area where I actually want to find a partner. That's kind of typically the stage that Uptake likes to get involved. At this point, you know, you have some data. There's an understanding of the value of this data within the organization, and we can really help accelerate those efforts. Um, you know, typical engagement for us, you know, they, the customer brings the subject matter expertise and the data, and we bring the data science and the software engineering. I was just say that's kind of the typical path that I recommend customers take to get started. Yeah, no, I kind of sit on on that side of the fence as well. Like, um, I've come from mining, and I, you know, now I work uh, at an oil analysis lab and like do reliability consulting work. And, and I really feel that like a lot of people get, get like they they hear artificial intelligence and they're like, we want to develop this in house. And my kind of thoughts on that are really. I, I just think you should outsource it to somebody who's like, that's their core competency. That, that's my feeling on it because like, like you're the expert, right? Like I can learn AI for a long time, but you know, you have 60 to 70 AI guys that work under you and you do this full time. So like for, in order for me to catch you, it's going to be almost impossible. Yeah. And look, like, like, like you said, like fluids analysis and oil analysis, like, that's, that's a full-time job, right? Like, I don't imagine you find yourself with a lot of extra free time. And, like, that's a core competency that you've developed, right? Software engineering, AI, like, that, that's a core competency. And al although, like, we try to educate our teams on the domains, like, we're never going to know as much about oil analysis as you know, and you're never going to know as much about AI as we know. But, you know, working together, we actually think there's, like, synergies that you can achieve. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, this is just basic economics again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, going to, back to the economics point too, if, I mean, if you do decide to build in-house, that, that's great. Um, uptake like integrates with in-house solutions all the time, but you're also going to find you probably like rebuild a lot of stuff, you know, like you wouldn't ever, you know, if you went to your boss and said like, Hey, uh, I need to rebuild our search engine for like pulling data from like our intranet portal. Like he would say like, that's crazy. Like that's not what we do even if you can make like a better incremental search engine, um, you know, we're just going to use it one time. Like why not take that cost and spread it across like a wide customer base? Absolutely. I mean, you've worked on a bunch of different projects in the AI space. And so what do you find that people don't do well or what mistakes do people make? Yeah. You know, a mistake that we see sometimes is uh, a lack of executive commitment. Um, you know, a lot of times when companies move or, or start to implement AI in an industrial setting, you'll find um, the incentives aren't really aligned for, for success. Um, you know, for example, one of our customers has a set of site supervisors that are incentivized to re reduce maintenance cost. Um, and, you know, revenue is kind of assumed to be outside of their control, right? But if you're using AI to monitor your machines, like we might recommend additional maintenance actions which might actually like increase short-term maintenance cost, right? Now, like, however, you're doing it based on the math where you can show that avoiding that unplanned downtime and that revenue loss offsets the increases in maintenance costs. But 
directly on the lines, like those people aren't, aren't incentivized that way. Right. So you really need somebody kind of high up at the executive level who can kind of restructure those types of incentives to make sure that, you know, everyone's operating in the, in the best interest of the company. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's always the case in reliability. Like what we talk about oftentimes is when people are implementing a reliability program, there's going to be like a mountain of work up front because they haven't really put the time and effort into maintaining their assets beforehand. And then once you get over that mountain of work, that's when you're going to start to see kind of the dividends of that investment that you've made. So it's just something that, you know, like it's in every project that we do as reliability people, it's, you have to have a kind of an understanding of the long term. And oftentimes what you see is people's incentive structures are so that they're thinking about either this quarter, this month, or this fiscal year. And we have to think about how we can extend that to, to, you know, five or 10 years from now. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm sure you encounter very similar challenges. Oh yeah, I mean we're we're having the debate today. Actually, it's kind of funny on on LinkedIn we're talking about today about you know doing looking at failure history and kind of prioritizing what work you're going to do as a reliability person. And you know, my contention is at a minimum we should be looking at one year's timeline, but if we can, we should be looking at the entire life cycle of the plant or facility or mine that you're working at. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. So we've, we found kind of the best way to overcome those and change those incentives and change that planning horizon is, is really to engage at the executive level, you know, uh, ideally at the C-suite level, if not the SVP, VP type level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oftentimes, though, those people have the highest short-term incentive uh, package. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. (laughs) So what do you see as kind of the biggest challenges in getting this technology out into the, like, into the entire industry? Like, we're, we're seeing it pop up shortly. We're slowly moving towards it. But what do you see as, as the challenge to getting the buy-in that we need? Yeah. Uh, well, is there a question around challenges to getting the buy-in or is it around challenges to implementation or, or kind of both? Both. Yeah. I mean, I think with respect to challenges of getting the buy-in, I mean, you know, you talked about, um, you know, the importance of kind of changing the time horizons uh, and, you know, understanding that an increase in maintenance activity today or a shift in maintenance activity today you know, may have reliability dividends like five or 10 years down the line. Um, but, but that's a long time, right? Um, so you're not going to see like an immediate, you don't always see as much of an immediate bump as you want. That can be a challenge. Now there's certainly cases like where we come in and like we, there's a lot of cases where like our algorithms show like immediate improvement to like the KPIs that our customers care about. Uh, but then there's a set of use cases that, that are, are on a much longer time horizon. So that's kind of one challenge. I think a second challenge is just rethinking the role of data within your organization. Like many customers or companies right now are thinking about it from an application-driven perspective. Uh, But, you know, this is really like a core asset that you want to curate and develop and kind of maintain its reliability, right? Just like you want to ensure the reliability of your stamping press or whatever it might be. You know, you want to ensure the reliability of your data um, as well. That's kind of a second big challenge that I see. 
Uh, you know, third challenge, um, a lot of machines, all, there has been a big proliferation of sensors, but a lot of machines still aren't censored for all the key critical failure modes that you might care about. You know, the, the vast majority of machines that we work with today, the sensors were placed there for kind of uh, control or operational purposes and actually not for, for monitoring or predictive purposes. Um, you know, sensor cost has really plummeted and we're seeing like more and more, you know, each generation of equipment that comes out is, is more and more censored and more and more connected. But again, like you're dealing with equipment that, it, you know, we deal with a lot of locomotives as of 20, 30 year operating life. They're not just going to go buy a new locomotive just because like uptake wants more sensor data. Right. So you kind of have to deal with that legacy. Uh, and that can also be a barrier. Absolutely. And I think one thing though, I'll just make a note of here is, a lot of people they'll they'll hear you say that and then they'll think about just buying like a thousand sensors and deploying them across their plant. I want to caution people against that. I I think that first off come up with a problem that you want to solve and then if you need the sensors then buy, you know, enough to solve that problem or monitor that problem and then once you prove the value case kind of expand it incrementally. Don't just go full bore and buy everything and just hope that that's going to help you. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Start with that one problem that you want to solve then work backwards. Like what sent, like what data do I have and what data do I need to get there? And if the solution to closing that gap is buying and installing more sensors, you know, by all means do that. But I definitely agree, like roll it out incrementally and roll it out to a clear end. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just applying, like it's an engineering way of thinking, but it's it's applying that kind of engineering kind of thought process. Define the problem first. Then, you know, you can work towards solving it instead of just having kind of an amorphous problem that you kind of want to hope to work on. <laughs> sure. Totally agree. Perfect. So I guess we'll wrap up here a little bit. So Adam... Do you have any plugs for next year? Like where can people find you? Where can people, can people ask you questions? Give us some plugs. Yeah. The, the best way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. Just search for uh, Adam McElhaney, M-C-E-L-H-I-N-N-E-Y. There's not a lot of Adam McElhaney's out there in the world. So I think I'm the only one in the U.S., at least that I've found. Uh, you know, reach out and connect with me there. I'll accept any connection that's sent to me. And I'm usually pretty responsive if, you know, people message me through the app. I also recommend people checking out uh, checking out my our blog at um, uptake.com. You know, we're constantly posting stuff about industrial IoT and reliability and artificial intelligence, um, everything from very technical stuff and even software that will open source, all the way through to more like executive oriented content. Um, also, I'm speaking at a, a really cool conference coming up in uh, the end of April called the. Open Data Science Conference East. It's in uh, it's in Boston. It'll be uh, the week of April 30th through May 3rd. Um, you know, if you're looking to learn more about data science applications and AI applications, that that's a great event to attend, and I would love to meet anyone there. Awesome. Yeah, there was something you posted the other day called UpDoc. Do you want to give us what that is and and what it's if it's for us? Yeah, absolutely. You're going to make my team very happy by asking about that, Rob. So uptake. So something about uptake, we're a, we're a big open source company. Like we love open source. We use open source. We contribute back to open source. Uh, and so UpDoc is a, a project that we've open sourced under 
uh, I forget the exact license, but a very liberal license. You can take it and use it and kind of do what you want with it. Um, so Updoc, many companies have uh, lots of data, HTML data and doc, excuse me, HTML documentation that have been generated from, from different tools. And they just want one catalog for organizing and curating all that data and then uh, serving it up to serving it up to users. So Updoc is a tool that allows you to host uh, HTML documentation kind of generated from any different tool. Could be generated from um, some developer tools or it could be generated, you know, exported from, um, you know, like a traditional, you know, web development framework and uh, cataloging it and serving it to make your own kind of documentation portal. We use it to host all of our technical documentation that we generate within Uptake. So our own data scientists and software engineers know how to use the various APIs that we create. Awesome. Yeah, it's not entirely for the mechanical engineers out there listening, but if, if you, any IT people are listening, it might be fun. They might like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Adam, you know, I, I want to say, you know, first off, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a blast. Yeah, no, I, I'd love to have you back on. I mean, I've been... I've been wanting to talk about economics for a long time with people. Just to, I think it's something that it's it's important that we talk about as the reliability community, but maybe we can do one of those later this year. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Let me know.